Welcome to Move Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Clapson. The aim of this podcast is to explore, learn, and spread the message of rewilding and natural movement so that we as humans can live in more alignment with our nature and reclaim what it means to be fully alive. The modern world has stripped away so much that used to nourish our mind, body, and soul. This podcast will help illuminate how we can reclaim and restore our innate, wild, capable, and strong spirit. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hey, hey, welcome back to Move Wild Podcast. Thanks for tuning in for Season 2, Episode 7. So stoked to get this one out to all of you guys and share this conversation. So today's show is with Peter Michael Bauer of Rewild Portland. Peter Michael Bauer is an anthropologist, experimental archaeologist, and historian. His work focuses on the social and environmental impacts of the Neolithic Revolution and how understanding these impacts can provide us with solutions to the sixth mass extinction. Since the early 2000s, he has been an integral catalyst in the human rewilding movement. He sees rewilding as a principle or a lens that helps us see and move through the world in terms of regeneration and reciprocity. It is not the one right way, it is a million ways to live in the flow of natural cycles. It recognizes that humans are not above those flows and that it is actually more beneficial to our ecosystem when we acknowledge and become a part of them. This movement works to create resilience through the return to place-based regenerative subsistence strategies inspired by those that existed prior to or exist outside of the formation of agrarian states. He created the first international online rewilding forum, now archived at disgust.rewild.com, wrote a book on rewilding called Rewild or Die, founded the organization Rewild Portland, where he teaches classes and created an annual North American rewilding conference. This was an epic episode. I'm super excited to see what you guys think. So let's jump into today's episode. Listen in after the show for how you can connect with myself and Peter and for what's going on with me. So welcome, Peter. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. So to start with, um, I'd like to get a bit of your backstory and kind of how you got into the world of, of rewilding and what you do today. So... Yeah, I got into rewilding um, as a teenager, really. I mean, I was always doing outdoorsy things, although that that, that to me isn't really what rewilding means. Uh, but I did a lot of outdoor type of things, which uh, rewilding overlaps with. Um, to me, rewilding is a whole uh, worldview and philosophy. It's not any specific action. Um, it's how you think about the actions that you're engaged in that makes it rewilding or not rewilding. So, you know, there's a, when I think about how I got into it, I got into it through the outdoors um, because the outdoors exposed me to a more than human world. Um, and I developed a sense of empathy for the more than human world, which gave me a bigger perspective that I see of as rewilding. So, I don't think of like camping, for example, as rewilding, um, but it could be, yeah. <laughs> depending on what your worldview is behind it, right? So like, you know, um, animal tracking, you could be tracking escape convicts for the government, or you could be tracking animals like for hunting and gathering. Like there's just all of these different things that kind of overlay into what makes something rewilding or not rewilding. So it's hard to say like 
how I ended up getting into it because there were so many different avenues that kind of came together that formed this bigger lens. Um, and, you know, the largest one being Daniel Quinn's work um, and Tom Brown Jr.'s work, both of those people influenced me heavily as a teenager and in terms of how I see the world and um, how and why I do this that I do. I don't really, um, I still stand behind a lot of Daniel Quinn's work, although I think that he was, um, didn't see all of the things that um, other folks have seen and, and added to and things like that. So I still feel like his stuff is the foundation of my philosophy, but there's a lot more that needed to be said and articulated and, um, you know, one person can't really see everything. So you can't rely on just one person to, to build that bigger picture for you. You have to go along and figure out the things for yourself and see all these different worldviews and blah, 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 blah. Um, I also don't subscribe to Tom Brown Jr. anymore in any way, uh, but I'm glad that I read his work as a teenager and that it inspired me um, to do the things I did, but I don't really follow any of his work or recommend it to anybody anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, but then, yeah, later on, you know, the bigger influence in terms of the actual word rewilding came through um, green anarchy and anarcho-primitivism, specifically the Green Anarchy magazine issue number four, I believe, um, in 2004, maybe it was issue number three, I don't remember, was specifically called rewilding. Um, and that was the first time I really saw the word and read the articles and got behind it thinking, oh, this is actually a word that I have now to finally describe what I do. It's really hard to describe this whole lifelong journey and process, you know. Um, but because you say to people that you're doing this thing and then they put it in a box, you know, or like you see somebody like Lynx Vilden doing her primitivist thing and people call that rewilding and then they put that in a box, which to me, what Lynx is doing is cool, but it's not rewilding except that it could be through the worldview of rewilding, but so could gardening in your backyard. You know I mean? There's just like so many things that fall under the umbrella because the umbrella is a whole different way of looking at the world. The problem is, you know, if you, if you put that label on any particular thing, like what Lynx is doing, like a primitivism, for example, then people are going to think that that's what rewilding means, right? They're gonna be like, Oh, that means you want to go like live in the woods and, hunt and gather and blah, blah. And that, that could be part of what your rewilding is, you know, your expression of rewilding could absolutely be that, but it could also be this whole other thing, you know, returning to a more horticulturalist lifestyle using transition technology in an urban center, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, you know, and so the, anyway, so I'm getting into a whole other tangent. <laughs> yeah. Keep going um, wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. you know, I mean, that's how I got into rewilding was through philosophy, essentially. And I think that's why I've always been one of those people who really holds down and um, uh, I feel like I'm a spokesperson for the philosophy. And that's because I see so many people who, you know, somebody the other day asked me, you say, Peter, you say there's no right way to rewild, that, that rewilding is a thousand different ways, that there's no one right way to rewild, but is there a wrong way to rewild? <laughs> and I, I had to be like, oh crap, well, actually, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's why I'm so fierce in my defense of the word 
and how people perceive it because I don't want it to get pigeonholed into a specific or a, a several specific specific actions, right? Like I want people to understand that rewilding is a whole worldview. It's, it, it, and it has, that is, once you have that worldview, anything that you're doing could be considered rewilding if you're following that worldview. You know, what that worldview means and is, is the constant sort of changing, fluctuating thing that is ever changing. So again, it becomes really hard to like pinpoint, you know, people like, what's your, what's your 30 second elevator pitch? What's rewilding? And I'm just like, no, that can't be done because it requires unlearning and dismantling this entire framework that you've grown up believing. And I can't do that in 30 seconds. You know, I've got a, I've got a class, my rewilding 101 class that goes four evenings that are like two hours long, right? And in that amount of time, we scratch the surface of what it means. And at the end of those eight hours, we're still like, what does this even mean? You know? Yeah. Um, and I hope that people, go, you know, have enough tools to kind of understand what it is and go from there, right? But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not even answering the question that you asked, but it, it, this is, I, I, I tend to loop questions that people ask me into what I'm thinking about at the particular moment. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm actually work. this is part of the, I'm writing the introduction to my new book on rewilding. And so a lot of this stuff is going in there because I see people like the article about links came out recently and um, I love what links does. I think it's super problematic in a lot of ways and I have a lot of criticisms for it, but I'm also really inspired by it. I did links program, um, you know, uh, so it's a, it's a weird thing to kind of be both really supportive of it and also hyper critical of it at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's because I, it's because I actually really care and I love this stuff so much that I feel like it needs to be, people need to be thinking about these things on a deeper level. I don't think I would have really much criticism for links at all. If she was doing this in um, Europe, you know, just, yeah. but because there's, Native American land and it's happening on there. There's all these things that need to be happening in regards to the fact that she's a settler in the United States on native land. And there's a framework there that I think is missing that would solve a lot of the problematic aspects of it. And it's one of the frameworks that I'm constantly working with here in Portland. So when I see people doing things and it's almost dismantling the work, especially when then people start using a word like rewilding to describe something that might be problematic in the contemporary era that we live, where then it gets hated on and trashed. If they're using that word, it makes a lot of the work that I've been doing more challenging to then have to overcome people's preconceived notions of what it means if it's been damaged in some way or another already. Um, which is bound to happen anyway. You know, you get into a, any kind of movement once it hits mainstream, nobody, you know, th there's going to be a certain level of capitalism and consumerism, um, the commercialization of it that comes in and waters it down in order to sell a product or, um, you know, usually to sell a product. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's just what happens when something hits the mainstream is that the mainstream version of it is never going to be the actual authentic thing that's going on. I mean, the same thing with the paleo diet, right? Like I knew, I was practicing the paleo diet before the book, The Paleo Diet, the first one came out in like 1998, right? But it was like a, a 
a bulletin board internet thing. You know, my friend Willem was the one who told me about it in the late 90s. And it just made perfect sense to me. So I started doing it. Of course, you know, the first book that came out about that's called The Paleo Diet. Um, it talks about like eating lean meats and doesn't mention organs at all. It doesn't mention fermented, like it's so ancient in comparison to not like the science behind the principles of the paleo diet. But when people hear the paleo diet, like, you know, the mainstream, they're just like, Oh, you put like meat on everything. It's like bacon on everything. Right. Like, and you're like, no, what the hell are you talking about? And that's why people can then put it in their little box and never have to think about ancestral diets or, you know, what we're, adapted to eat or anything like that you know people just want to be able to hear a thing in the mainstream make it easily digestible but not everything can be easily digestible especially when it's something like the paleo diet you know which is one like small fraction of what rewilding encompasses because essentially you know what people did with the paleo diet like oh maybe we're more adapted to eating this particular food based on our entire genetic history or whatever you know what i mean like yeah. and bioregion specific and ancestors you know like there's so many nuance that goes into that's just that one thing of like what are humans adapted best adapted to eat and what humans in where and like you know i mean you can extrapolate from there but like rewilding is that question but for everything you know what i mean and so how is it that humans lived for 3 million years sustainably on the planet without destroying it, without causing the sixth mass extinction? That to me is like the driving question of what is rewilding. Rewilding is figuring out what happened that changed, you know, the Neolithic revolution. Why did that take place? What is all of the challenges and damages that it's generated? with that information how can we change the way we're living now is that even possible and move forward through the sixth extinction and hopefully survive um live through it and carry on you know which uh if climate change does kill everybody then that's <laughs> you know that's the end of that but um you know to me rewilding is is trying to figure those things out and so if people have this preconceived notion that it's just something that you know only white people do and it's this one then they're not fully grasping the picture and it's magazines like outside that publish that kind of thing without the whole framework behind it and actually that article in outside magazine with links was originally pitched to me as an article about rewilding and the author of the article flew to portland hung out with me all day we talked shop in a coffee shop, you know, I just philosophized with her, explained to her the framework, all the things, and that I don't see what Lynx is doing as rewilding per se. Um, or if it is, it's like one person's idea of what that could look like, but that that shouldn't be the pigeonhole that rewilding gets placed in. Um, but, you know, character and aesthetic is what sells in marketing and i was obsessed with that back in my day you know again when i first got into rewilding in the early 2000s i created this character urban scout and i got loads of i would walk around portland in a loincloth covered in like camouflage mud you know and like and white people's cigarettes with a bow drill on the street corner um and like you know i do like street corner um, profit type shit, you know, preaching and stuff like that. And back then I was more into like this sort of apocalypse, uh, Mad Max road warrior sort of aesthetic. I'm not into that at all anymore. But um, so there was like kind of parts of that and things. Um, but 
it was easy to get press because the press loves that kind of like a big personality. You know, I mean, it, it was a, it was a facade. I was a, it was a joke. I was like a clown of rewilding basically. Right. And, it, but I, there was some authenticity to it. It wasn't all a joke. I'm actually a rewilder. I'm actually doing these things. It's not like I had a fake bow drill. I was actually lighting cigarettes with a bow. You know what I mean? So there's like this level of that. But then as soon as you switch over and you just start talking to people about actually how to actually frame rewilding, you can't do it in a, you know, 5,000 word <laughs> article in outside magazine or something like it's just not possible. And so what are they going to do? Of course, they're going to look for what are what's going to be the most beautiful visual imagery. It's not going to be Peter at a coffee shop in Portland, reading a book or writing or talking to somebody and explaining this worldview, right? It's gonna be somebody like in the wilderness, in buckskins with their bow and arrow, like riding a horse, you know what I mean? And, and, it, and so then that's the problem is that um, that's what the article ends up being about. And so like I ended up, uh, you know, telling the author to delete everything that she had um, written about me in the article because it switched to being about rewilding to being about links and I love links and I think what she's doing is awesome and it's super problematic and I don't want to be associated with it and I would prefer that the word rewilding doesn't be associated with it again because of this reputation thing I don't want this word to get this reputation uh, as something that is this one specific thing that then everybody looks at and thinks that's like so far out there it's not attainable for me I like you know, if somebody sees links, they're never going to think that they could do that. I mean, maybe yeah. some people could go and do links's thing and now, and that's great. But like, to me, rewilding is something that it's a worldview change. So people are doing it wherever they're at, they're yeah. meeting it wherever they're at and being on a, going on that links route is so far off from what most people can do and, and try and accomplish. Yeah that it makes rewilding seem completely unattainable to people. And that's not what the end goal is really anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but if I had been, you know, if that author had come to Portland and I had been urban scout and I had been in my loincloth and taken her out on the street corner and showed her that I was like lighting cigarettes and she could have had this like photographer come and take these pictures. I mean, this is what I used to do. I got in magazines all over the world in my twenties because that, that was what I wanted to do at the time or whatever. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, that shit's hollow, and I wasn't creating um, an actual rewilding movement. You know, it was a it was a facade, or it was um, it, it, that's it's not to say that I didn't affect change in that um, in that world, but that it's like the show Portlandia. Yeah. This there's a there's a television show on the on the independent film channel or whatever called Portlandia. I used to work in the film industry in Portland, so I know a lot of people who put it together and worked on it and stuff. And um, the very first season, they cast my, my one of my friends did the casting. He was like, "Hey Peter, do you want to be on the show as Urban Scout? It'd be really fu funny, you know." And I was like, "What the sh what's the show about?" And they're like, "Well, it's it's like making fun of ourselves. It's like you know the people of Portland like making fun of ourselves." And I was like, who's in it, you know? And they're like, well, it's Fred Armiston and Carrie Brownstein. And I was like, you know what? I, and I watched their video and I was just like, I don't feel like they're, I don't feel like they're us making fun. I don't, it doesn't feel like they're making fun of ourselves. It feels like people making fun of us. It feels like people exploiting us and like, you know, um, and then I, I watched the show several times and I was just like, I'm glad I didn't end up on it because it felt like 
you know, everybody's laughing at this absurd thing that goes on in Portland or whatever, right? I mean, it's not like it's just Portland. It's a whole like millennial uh, subculture that exists in Austin and Brooklyn and you know what I mean? It's all over the country, but it's still like the specific demographics. So I get it. But it like, what does it really do in the end? Like basically Urban Scout was just like entertainment for people to consume, not actually creating a community of rewilding. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I ended up getting off the internet for a while, creating Rewild Portland and just really focusing on real world activities. You know, for years we had the rewild.com international forum. I'd say the heyday, you know, was from like 2006 to 2009. Everybody was blogging. So everybody was on the internet, you know, and all the blogs linked to the rewild forum. So we were having these like deep conversations that just spiraled and spiraled. Um, and then Facebook, you know, I got off the internet, Facebook kind of took over, blogs ended up kind of disappearing and everybody started leaving forums to go just chat on Facebook. So there was this cultural shift in terms of knowledge um, that happened. And then I had stepped away from that online presence, both to just work because I, I needed money and also to focus on making Rewild Portland a reality. Um, and so when I ended up like after five, six years of doing that, it was like 2014 or so when I started seeing, oh shit, like now there's this, like the, the commercialization of the paleo diet had already happened. <laughs> you know, there were already like these paleo bars that you could get or primal <laughs> bars or all the things, you know what I mean? Like that all existed in the late aughts, right? It was getting more and more because CrossFit really upped like people's understanding and, and awareness of the paleo diet. But by the late aughts, like the commercialization of the paleo diet had already been, you know, going for a couple of years. So it was funny to see that happen and see like, oh, now there's all these things that say they're paleo, but they actually are like products that don't even understand the like basic principles of the movement. It's purely a commercial, it's a mass marketed commercialization. Um, and of course, the connection to rewilding through that world ended up happening. And you saw, you know, in the, the mid-teens, you see this burst of um, rewilding commercialization that's been continuing to this day. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that frustrates me sort of the most about um, this, this journey is just like seeing that um, and feeling like I have no control over it. <laughs> Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, after using this word and popularizing it uh, through our websites, through my book, through all these different venues, and then seeing people like take the word, twist it, and make it about selling deer antler velvet extract or something, you know, like it, it just, it, it just kind of killed me, right? So then at that point, it's, there's this realization of like, okay, I need to be, I need to be a spokesperson again, um, yeah. in a larger cultural context like rewild portland was was going strong you know we have a really strong rewilding community here and so at that point i was like i need to i need to get back out in the world and started doing these um rewilding 101 classes and um, writing more and going sort of doing a podcast circuit interviews and then you know eventually the board was of rewild portland was like you need to start a rewilding podcast so here i i am the last year have started that um 
So yeah, that's kind of yeah. my journey of how I ended up here in a that's nutshell, awesome. not really a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, there's so many things to kind of unpack from that. You mentioned that you, you're working on a book. What's the going to be the focus of that book? Is it just going to be explaining rewilding from a worldview standpoint and kind of dismantling the worldview of civilization and domestication or what's the focus of that? Yeah, so, you know, Rewild or Die, my first book, was a collection of blogs, really, that, I, that were persuasive essays published on my blog. Um, the idea behind them was to be short and succinct without saying too much. Um, and so it ended up, it ends up being like a, I call it like a toilet book. <laughs> um, the chapters are so short, you can read one while you're on the toilet, right? Yeah. Um, and then when you're done with the book, you can wipe your ass with the paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but no, um, so this book is, there's, there's a lot of things that I wrote that need correction um, from Rewild or Die. Not, the overall gist is the same, but the wording, the definition of rewilding that I used um, lends itself to again, this is what, what I would call rewilding in the wrong way, or, or just not even rewilding, really. Um, and so for the newer book, it's it's essentially taking the, the rewilding 101 class that I've been doing and distilling it down into um, all of the chapters are basically curriculum points of lectures that I give in the Rewilding 101 class. And so, yeah, to me, it's about breaking down, because I see re rewilding as a worldview, that's the whole premise of the book, mm -hmm. is how do you get people to see through this lens um, of what is wildness and what is captivity and how are those things, you know, how, how does captivity breaking natural laws of physics in terms of like how biology and evolution works and how embracing wildness, which is what I consider, you know, I used to say that rewilding, the definition that I synthesized for rewilding in 2006 when I created rewild.com is one that I see all over the internet now, you know, people, <laughs> which was, um, you know, rewild to, I don't even remember anymore, the process, um, to return to a more natural or wild state, the process of undoing domestication. And then I had this shirt when I was a teenager that said unschooling. Or no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. Unschooler. It had the definition of an unschooler because I dropped out of high school and ran away from home. And I was very adamant about being a high school rise out, not drop out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't really use any of that. I don't care about any of that anymore. But yeah. Um, I had a t-shirt that said unschooler and it had like synonym, it had a definition of it and in the bottom it had synonyms and one of them was autodidact, which I, people are like, oh, you know, what, how, what school did you go to? I'm like, I'm an autodidact. <laughs> Makes you sound really smart when you're a dropout, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're like, what's that? <laughs> um, so I thought in creating that definition of rewild, I was like, oh, I should have some cool like synonyms, you know? So I chose like um, undomesticate or something like that and uncivilized. Um, and that definition just like existed on the rewild.com website. Miles Olson published it. Well, it's in my book. Miles Olson published it in his book, Unlearn Rewild. Miles was a friend of mine. He was on the Rewild forum back in the day. 
So, you know, like, again, there's this sort of like cultural zeitgeist. Um, I got the definition from a green anarchy, two different green anarchy websites. And I took those definitions, mashed them together, deleted a bunch of things, added some things and put it out there. Um, and now it's, you know, if you look at the anarchist Wikipedia rewilding page, which it's funny that there's two, there's the conservation biology rewilding and anarchist rewilding. Um, if you look at that, it's, it's my definition on there and I see other people using it or, you know, obviously just taking that and, and, and making variations of it. Um, I don't use that definition anymore. And uh, part of the whole premise of this introduction of my book is, is writing my newer definition of it and then backing up that definition with the rest of the book. Um, and that'll be the feat of the book if I'm able to accomplish that, which I think I will. Um, and, you know, the first time around I self-published my book, it was a series of blogs. There were a couple companies that were interested in publishing it. Um, Process Media and um, North Atlantic Press were both showed interest, um, didn't end up picking it up in the end. But this time around, I'm, I'm definitely going to go through a publishing company and, and things like that because of the amount of plagiarism that my book received or I feel that it received. I would like to have a publishing company actually do it this time that has funds that could, um, <laughs> you know, and not that I care about what I write being taken up and the mantle carried on by others. Obviously, that is what I want to happen. That is what I am doing. So, you know, there's on, on the one hand, what I'm writing isn't in, per se my own complete intellectual property, but the book itself and the way that it's structured and all those things and the amount of effort and time that I've put into this stuff, I would like, I give people credit where ideas came from. I would like other people to give me credit as well, like in passing on that torch, you know what I mean? And I feel like, um, that's why I don't blog anymore. Um, because after seeing a lot of that work, what perceiving it as plagiarized, who knows, but even, you know, even just if it was plagiarism in the sense of people using the word without crediting or mentioning anybody in the rewilding scene ever, um, yeah. you know, pretending that they invented the word. There are people who pretend they invent the word and I know where they learned it from. I know all of the people in the rewilding community and where they connected. So, you know, it's like, it's frustrating to see that happen. And it's also um, inevitable, but in publishing a new work, definitely there's this apprehension I have and a demand for either like getting it published through a larger publishing company, both for exposure, um, but also for, also for that um, credibility and that, that legal framework of, of backing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll see if I ever, if I ever publish it. I've been working on it for years, you know I mean? And, and when I say working on it, a lot of it is lectures that I give um, at my rewilding class. A lot of it's not written at all. And so part yeah. of this process is, me figuring out how to write all the shit down. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I haven't been a writer for a while. I mean, when you know, when you're blogging, you're writing. Then I started being a didactic teacher and talking. And so then that the medium changed. Now it's in my brain and I can talk it. It's hard for me to write it out. So I'm trying to make that transition. And honestly, with the pandemic happening, I'm having to switch to doing online curriculum for Rewild Portland. 
And so that part of my brain, the writing part has been like reactivating. And so I've been spending a lot more time actually working on the book as I'm writing a rewild, an online rewilding 101 course finally because of the pandemic um, and our inability to make money um, as a nonprofit through classes because all of our classes have been in person. Um, and so we're having to adapt in this way, which is weird. <laughs> it's very, the I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's very antithesis to rewilding to me is like, people are like, why don't you do an online version? I'm like, because I want to be in person. I want to connect <laughs> with the people that I'm talking to. And, you know, that's why I haven't done it. But now we're, we have no choice. We're forced into this position. Um, and so those other skills, I think, are coming back, which I'm excited about. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, could you kind of give a brief description of how you would define civilization and how we can start to dismantle the worldview of civilization to move back towards a more wild mindset? Um, yeah. So people... <laughs> There's um, such a deep-seated uh, sort of narcissism within civilization that they think the word means society. So people in civilization use it synonymously with culture or society or civil society. But civilization is a very specific way of humans organizing themselves. There's many ways for humans to organize themselves. Civilization is a very specific one. And if you read the dictionary definition, it literally spells it out for you. Um, and that is, you know, there's a couple of things in there that, uh, that allude to all of the things that are required in order to get to that point at all. And the biggest one is writing. So, you know, the, if you don't have writing, you're not considered a civilization. Writing is one of the key aspects that makes a society a quote unquote civilization. Now, people, when they hear that, they think um, that it's, that if you don't, so there's two ends of it, right? There's one that's like, everybody who doesn't have writing is an idiot. That's basically, or, you know, they're lesser than, they're not human because they didn't invent this and if they, so there's, there's that element of it. The second element of it is you have the romanticization or the, the idea that um, indigenous people who didn't develop writing didn't have culture, didn't have artistic expression. And so you have like people being like, no, every, all these, these people have civilizations too. And you have these other people that are like, no, uh, they were lesser than human because they didn't have writing, which we're equating with art and culture and those kinds of things, right? So it's this weird unpacking where you have to be like, no, a civilization is a society that has writing, but where does writing emerge? Writing doesn't emerge from the creative uh, th literary thing that we think of as writing now. Writing emerges from mathematics. Writing emerges, and w which those things not even mathematics, let me, let me wind that back too. Writing emerges from grain storage calculations, from basically the idea of keeping track of surplus. So 
the idea that writing is this creative endeavor is not really where the origins of it comes from. We're humans and we're creative and we take our creativity and we pour it into everything that we do. So of course, writing that is this mundane tally marks, you know, the first cuneiform is essentially tally marks that are marking how much grain is being stored. Um, of course, we're going to take that and do something beautiful and creative with it because that's just, I think, you know, there's an innateness in humans to create things. Um, maybe that's me projecting. I like, I, I try to keep away from projecting any sort of innate quality in humans, but I do feel like there's this, um, I don't know. Anyway, that maybe I'm wrong and I'm, and I'm willing to be wrong on that. Um, but that's where writing originates from, right? So it, so what that's saying is that for a culture to be called a civilization, it has to be tallying grain in storage. And what does that mean? How do you get to the point where your society is tallying grain in a storage unit of some kind, right? Like that's a very specific kind of technology and it only exists in agricultural societies. Now here's the, that, that are storing excess amounts of food, right? So now you have to extrapolate from that, well, why would people be storing food, right? And in this, qual in this quantity where they actually have to start like keeping track of it by using this new system of tally marks and you know, this kind of thing, right? And that goes down the, the rabbit hole to agriculture. And what does agriculture mean? And how do you develop that? And how does it get to the point where you're tallying these marks, right? So again, this is why there's no 30 second elevator pitch for rewilding because we're only, you know, we're again, we're just scratching the surface here. We're, we're pulling on a thread that's connected to a thousand threads that then you're gonna have to follow all of those all the way back to, you know, as far back as we want to define what it means to be human, right? Which yeah. at this point is still 2.5 million years old. Um, it's Homo habilis and they call it, you know, handyman. And the reason they call the Homo habilis handyman is because they're found in the same context as the stone tools that were used back then 2.5 million years ago. So the original delineation of what a human was, was the stone tool use. However, recently they've found uh, you know, sites in Africa that date to 3.3 million years of stone tool use, which is way, way further back. That's into Australopithecus, which is our, you know, ancestor before we are considered human, right? So, you know, we can try to understand all of that stuff, but really the, what, what I think the biggest changes that we saw happening were in the last 50,000 years with the upper Paleolithic and then the Neolithic. And it, when you look at these kinds of graphs that have like the complexity of technology and these different things, it's hard to not project the myth of progress and technological innovation onto that from a civilized mindset. But I'd just like to point out that none of this was inevitable and that at any point in time, human societies can shift and change and alter. And there's this hashtag that's going on right now. We are the virus, hashtag we are the virus. And it's a, you know, it's about, um, uh, it, it's like the matrix, you know, the very end of the matrix when the agent Smith 
says humans are a virus, I've discovered humans are a virus. What they're doing is what I'm talking about is conflating humanity with civilization. So civilization is a very specific way of life. The Bushmen, for example, the Hadzame, they are not a civilization. They do not have writing, first of all. They do not have all of the things that require a society to have before the innovation of writing or the development of writing. And they never did, and they never want to, right? Yeah. So immediate return hunter-gatherers did not develop civilization, and it was never inevitable. It was a domino effect. To me, civilization is a forest fire. It's a natural disaster that has been generated through, you know, humans are the, um, the agents of the natural disaster, of the force of nature. But I don't even necessarily think that humans are to blame because we are nature. We are part of this system. And so whatever pressures that were happening on the planet in whatever particular environments that lit the match of civilization, you know, that, that started that fuse, that started burning humans in this way or making us behave in these, this bizarre pattern, those were environmental factors, you know, those are all of the factors of our own evolution and in those specific geographic places. So there's no way of like, in my mind, placing the blame on the thing that ignited this forest fire, but now it's burning and it's literally consuming and burning the energy stored in the planet that was brought here by the sun and heating the whole fucking thing up. <laughs> so in that sense, it is literally like a fire. Um, now, let's rewind just a little bit to, to this, the idea of agriculture. Again, people think that agriculture, let me be clear about what I mean by agriculture. Um, in the same way that um, people conflate civilization with civil society or just with culture and society, people conflate the word agriculture and the word cultivation. So agriculture is a very specific kind of cultivation in the same way that civilization is a very specific kind of society, right? Cultivation is basically conscious manipulation of the land, okay? So that could be anything from knowing that if I eat this berry, swallow the seeds and shit it out somewhere, that the plant is gonna grow. So I'm conscious and I think about where should I poop so that another plant grows. That could be, that's, that could be the most basic rudimentary form of cultivation, right? Now, agriculture is a very specific kind of manipulated conscious land management. It is, it linguistically, agra, if you follow the etymology, means field, so a meadow. And culture, if you follow that, it's from the Latin verb colere, which means to till the soil, which is, again, why people conflate the word culture with civilization, the way we understand culture now, just being like society and art and all of those things. But if we think about the origins of that, if you weren't, culture literally meant to till the soil, right? Now cultivate means conscious land management, but originally it meant to till the soil. So if you were not tilling the soil, you were not a culture. So agriculture means field culture, right? So in order to produce a field culture, you have to what? 
to be in a place where there's a field. (laughs) Um, You know, and usually that's in what we call alluvian plains. So flood plains that are flat ground with lots of soil that's constantly being fertilized by rivers and silt that are washing the silt from the mountains down and keeping the the flood plains and river deltas fertile, right? So you don't actually really even need to till the soil in those regions. But what happens when you want to export agriculture outside of a floodplain and create a field somewhere else, you have to create that disturbance of a flood, which means you have to import water and you have to import fertilizer. So what people do is they till the soil to rip up all of the nutrients from the ground and fertilize the top part of it. But you can't do that for very long without depleting the nutrients in the soil. So agriculturalists had to come up with all these. So first of all, they had to divert water from the rivers, right? So like, you know, the most extreme example we can think of now is the Colorado River, which has so much of its water diverted for agriculture that the river doesn't even meet the ocean anymore. Wow. And they say that, oh, there's a drought. You know, there's a drought. It's climate change. No, the water has been so diverted from the Colorado River for agriculture that it no longer meets the ocean. That is the insane length that civilization has gone where, you know, again, it's a forest fire. It's burning. It's, it's a positive feedback loop. Okay. So, um, so you have water diversion and fertilizer, you have tilling the soil and then these, this in, intentional water diversion from the river. So what does that do? That wash the tilling, the soil rips and loses the nutrients from it. And then when you water it, all of those nutrients end up getting washed down into the river and this you're losing soil every year, year after year. There's a book that this is the sole focus of the book. It's called Dirt, The Collapse of Civilizations. And it's how all these different civilizations burn through their soil by growing these grains in field cultures, agriculture, right? Tilling the soil to create a field. So, you know, pull on that thread, pull on that thread, and you end up understanding like, well, how come the population has been growing exponentially And when I say the population, that's super problematic for a lot of things. Because when I say the population of humans has been growing exponentially since the Neolithic revolution, that's, again, I'm conflating all humans into one demographic. That's not what's been happening, right? The Bushmen, the Hadzame, like these immediate return hunter-gatherers, they're still probably within reason of what their populations were 10,000 years ago. We don't know. We can't look at them as living fossils. They're not how people were living 10,000 years ago. They're a different thread of humanity existing today from that 10,000 year split or whatever, right? So they're an example of humanity that exists today that's ch- that chose a different route or that just didn't go this way, right? And their populations are in flux with the land base that they live on and they do not have an exponentially growing population, right? So even that, that concept of theirs is a challenging one to look at. But if you're starting to understand all of these threads are connected, right? So one of the things about population growth and, and field culture, agriculture, is that you have to deforest a region to create more field. Because what happens when you burn through your soil and it's gone? You can't grow in anything in it anymore. You know, you know the brassica family? Yeah. Are you familiar with the, the brassica? Yeah. So, you know, the mustards or whatever. Mustards are adapted to grow in damaged soils. That's why they are one of the biggest agricultural crops is because the soils are so damaged 
that mustards are the things that we grow, right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the soil is being damaged or deforesting regions. If you look, there's a, a great book called Plows, Plagues, and Petroleum, How Humans Took Control of the Climate. And it's about how climate change began with the Neolithic Revolution. People were deforesting regions, they were losing soil, they were tilling the soil, soil was going into the air and into the ocean, acidifying the ocean, which was causing it to store even more carbon and all that. So again, there's these feedback loops and you can see where the, the planet was supposed to start cooling 10,000 years ago, it flattens out and it doesn't wow. cool and it just stays a flat lined for like 10,000 years. And then of course it starts to go up and then with the industrial revolution, it's now just a, a, the, the ludicrous extent, right? So yeah. you've got deforestation, soil loss, climate change. Now part of this is the population growth with um, an agriculturalist society has no ecological uh, limits to growth. When you're an immediate return hunter-gatherer and you're semi-nomadic, you have to carry children with you everywhere you go for the first like two or three, four years, right? So if you're that mobile, you don't, you can't have a lot of, of children. So women in those societies intentionally managed their birthing process and they spaced out births and they had all these technologies and understanding of plant medicines and things like that to regulate their populations not from like some state level population control thing, right? But from an understanding of like the needs to keep it in that, in that space, right? Yeah. Whereas then you have an agricultural society. Now we're gonna get into this point where you don't have to carry babies anymore. You're in one place, right? So you can have them more regularly. You don't have to think about that. But also you need labor because hunting and gathering is a hyper-efficient subsistence strategy. Think about like a savanna lion. Do you know how, how many hours a day a, a lion spends hunting or searching for their food? No idea. One, one wow. hour. Wow, okay. They spend 23 hours sleeping, one hour wow. hunting and eating. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, you know, you think about like humans are genius, well-adapted animals to their environments. We evolved as immediate return hunter-gatherers. So when studied in the 70s, the existing immediate return hunter-gatherers only had to work what we consider labor, food procurement for two to three hours a day to get the food that they needed. That doesn't mean um, that they weren't doing any other kind of what we would call labor after that. But when compared to agriculturalist societies for the same type of labor to just get the food that you need, agriculturalists are working eight to 12 hours a day, whereas hunter-gatherers work two to three hours, right? Yeah. So, and then think about this, what do, you know, that's where the eight, eight hour work that comes from is from the, that, that labor. Uh, but think about also, what do people, agriculturalist society people do for leisure when they're not working? They go hiking, they go fishing. Yeah. Right? yeah. They do, like, like our leisure is a hunter-gatherer's labor. <laughs> yeah. That's insane, yeah. right? So that's just, you know, throwing, out, throwing that thing out there. But one of the reasons why agriculture is so much labor is that you have you have to store food because if you're growing a monoculture, if you're, if you're growing all your own food, 
if a disease comes through and wipes it out, you're dead. You've put all your eggs in one basket, right? So you've automatically created the problem of pests and mono, but through a monoculture of yeah. grain. Um, and so in order to survive, you have to have, and, and, and there's a great essay called The Neolithic Refrigerator, and it, it goes through this process where you have, um, in order for a Neolithic village, everybody had to have, say you need like 100 units of food to feed yourself for the year, right? So it's not, you, you don't grow 100 units of food. That would be great. But what happens if there's a lean year, right? So you have to grow for next year and the year after that. Most Neolithic refrigerators, quote unquote, had two years worth of food. But the other thing is the spoilage rate is insane. So you have to grow more than, you know, like 40% a year is spoilage, right? So 100 units just to eat, plus factor in like 40 units or 30% or something for spoilage, then factor in like two years down the line, then factor in that you actually need seeds, like starter seeds every year. And that's equal to the amount that you need, but then also spoilage from that, blah, 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 blah. You, you extrapolate this, say you need 100 units of food, Per year, you have to grow 450. Right. What this neo what this Neolithic essay didn't include was taxation and tribute. So, you know, um, pastoral societies and agricultural societies have been at war for thousands of years. It's in the Bible, right? It's one of the first stories in the Bible, <laughs> and that's because food storage pastoralists have no have mobile food storage in their animals they can move their food and go wherever they want so they could strike an agricultural center steal everything and and leave and there was no recourse yeah <laughs> it's not like the agriculturalists could follow them right yeah so they ended up having this relationship of tribute where instead of like basically pastoralists would be like how about instead of us killing and stealing your food you just give us a percentage of it and we'll like protect you or whatever right yeah <laughs> with our mobile army and so you have this relationship this marriage of domestication where you have the plants and the domesticated animals and it forms the society of tribute so think about on top of growing 450 units just to exist now you have to also grow more in order to pay tribute to this society which then uses that money to feed a military to then force you to pay them the tribute it's, <laughs> it's this horrible yeah. cycle right and yeah. so it becomes and that's where the positive feedback loops come into play where you have this society that is impossible to break free from because it's locked in place and then from there it just spirals out of control and that's where you end up with writing with um, what the, the second part of the definition of civil, civilization in the dictionary that I reference is they say complex political organizations or complex um, social frameworks. What they're really talking about is hierarchy and what they're really talking about is slavery because you know there's chattel slavery, which is like physical ownership of a human body, which is the most fucked up form of slavery, right? But the most basic form is just simply forced labor. Mm. So anytime you're forced, you know, I'm going to hold a gun and say, do this or I'm going to kill you. I don't own your body. I can't like trade you, but like, I'm going to tell you, you have to do this 
And if you don't, you're dead and we'll just take your land or whatever, right? So in that regard, that taxation, that tribute, that's where all of that started. That's what they're talking about when they say social complexity, right? That didn't exist before. You can't have slaves in an immediate return society because there's nothing to hold over people. There's nothing to make them dependent. Food is everywhere. It's not in a granary that's being dispersed, right? Yeah. So the power structure that was able to exist and perpetuate itself because of the subsistence model. So as long as agriculture and pastoralism, as long as that form of domestication are linked together in that way, that power structure is just going to continue to exist. Yeah. So, and, and this has been the case for everywhere there has been grassland and alluvian plains everywhere on every continent for almost 10,000 years, right? So hunter-gatherers had to escape and live in, in um, the margins, or what we, what we call the margins because we can't plant food there, but aren't margins to the animals that exist there, right? That's just their habitat. To us, that we consider those locations margins because they're hard for us to grow food in, right? So we're talking about mountains, right? Like that expression, head for the hills. That's because the hills are a place where you can escape state power. So during a war or something like that, you can escape to those and live up there. That's like the Tyrolean people in the Alps, the Basque. You know, Basque is one of the oldest languages in the world, uh, in Europe. And that's because the Basque people fled to the mountains when agriculturalists came through 7,000 years ago. Yeah. So, and then even in, um, in Peru, in, in South America, you have the alluvian plain is actually at like 10,000 feet or something like that. So hunter-gatherers lived below in the jungle and above in, in the mountains. So there's just this interesting geographically, um, this, this way of participating in the land has been a Pandora's box that everybody has been struggling with for thousands of years. Um, and now with you know, things like capitalism and, and the industrial revolution, they turned it up to 11. I don't know if you've seen Spinal Tap, but you know, um, they, it just was able to amplify things to this ludicrous extent. And the sixth extinction, which began thousands of years ago, is now ramping up to potentially wipe out all of us, you know? So to me, civilization is, to answer your question, <laughs> a force of nature, a, a, a ge an, an ecological phenomenon that happens when humans practice full-time agriculture, which causes their population to grow exponentially and eventually lead to this power structure that then locks it in place until the soil is burned out and you have ecological and cultural collapse yeah. or ecological and cultural um, failure. I don't know. I, I hate the word collapse now for a lot of reasons because it's not a collapse for everything else that's alive. Mm. It's a collapse for the power structure, yeah. but for every other living thing, it's the end of the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> the collapse of civilization is the beginning of life, you know, is the, is the end of the sixth extinction. So everything else, it's not a collapsing ecosystem. It's coming back, right? Yeah. 
the collapse isn't something that other things fear. It's what those in power fear because it's the end of their power. And poor people too, like poor people, we, I think we have a fear of collapse because we think it's the apocalypse. It's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of that power structure. And so when I think about the collapse of civilization, what I think of as actually the end of the forest fire, the forest fire has reached the point of diminishing returns. There's no more fuel left for it to ignite and it's going to slowly burn out. Right yeah. now, that's not to say that there aren't horrible events that are part of that. Pandemics are part of that, right? Mass die-off is a horrible thing. I'm not saying that that is a great thing for us emotionally as emotional creatures who love each other and love other humans. It's terrible. And at the same time, ecosystems will be able to bounce back. I don't think that other than human life isn't excited about the prospect of that transition, right? Yeah. I would say that if there are if there are future generations of humans, they will be glad that we were able to reduce our populations in some way to end the sixth extinction. I don't, population growth is a really problematic and touchy subject for a lot of people. And it lends itself to eco-fascist ideology. But I think the left has abandoned talking about it. And what that's done is made it a thing that only then is talked about by eco-fascists who then think of schemes like genocide and things like that. But to, dis, to, to ignore that problem opens it up to be talked about only by a demographic who has no interest or care for humans, all humans, right? And so that's a whole other topic I don't even want to get into on here because honestly, I can't, um, I'm, I'm just learning how to be able to articulate it and deconstruct the word population, like I said, in terms of like looking at it demographically, because in, you know, even looking at this pandemic, who are the people that are dying the most demographically is black people. You know, it's not white people that are dying in mass or, or the, the percentages are, are very skewed towards black people. And so when we're talking about population and die off and those kinds of things and the necessity of it, there's a lot of problematic things that we need to unpack and look at in all of that so that we don't support eco-fascism and the idea of white supremacy, right? Yeah. I'm not able to talk about it yet. I don't have the words and the understanding to be able to give it justice. I'm in the middle of a book right now that's blowing my mind. That's beautiful. It's called Making Kin, Not Population. And it's a really awesome exploration of being able to talk about this topic from a, a social justice informed position. Mm, I love um, that. And environmentally, and social and environmentally formed, informed position. So yeah. um, hopefully I'll be able to, to be able to talk about it more and, and from that perspective within the next year or so is like, that's one of the main things I'm focusing on right now is because I like to jump into those problematic things. I like to, um, I like to be uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't like to be stupid and say the wrong thing. <laughs> but that's yeah. it does happen. But but you know, um, I do like to be informed. And so, to me, those sticky things that nobody wants to talk about are the things that we should be talking about and delving into and looking at from all perspectives. Um, For sure. So, yeah. 
That's yeah. awesome. Can you? That's civilization in a nutshell. Not a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. How are you going for time? Do you need to get off at a certain time or? Um, I'm fine. Cool. Awesome. Um, <laughs> this is and, what I do, you know. I, <laughs> yeah, totally. I love it. Uh, it's, it's great to hear your passion come through as you talk. But can you, um, a bit of a definition of immediate return versus delayed return for people yeah. who are listening who don't necessarily know the difference between those two? Totally. So um, an anthropologist named James Woodburn coined this term, immediate return, hunter-gather, delayed return, hunter-gather, because he saw a distinct difference in culture and behavior and subsistence between these societies that were all being labeled as hunter-gatherers or foragers. The distinction basically comes down to food storage. Immediate return hunter-gatherers go out, gather the food they need, and consume it. They do not store their food. Um, they, they'll bring it back to a base camp, maybe two or three days, then they go out and get more food. This is something that really can only be done in like the tropics where humans evolved. And this is something that is still done where it's allowed, where the state has allowed it, or where it's so fringe and far and deep in the jungle that, you know, the state can't stop it. Um, but delayed return begins with thinking about storing food for a future point in time, gathering food, drying it, you're thinking for the and working your labor is something that's going to pay off in the future not in the immediate moment your labor payoff is delayed and so immediate return hunter-gatherer delayed return hunter-gatherer and what we see in the archaeological record and with contemporary delayed return and immediate return is definitely distinctive human behaviors um, and so, you know, when we talk about what is human nature, this is one of those things that kind of gets to the central focus of rewilding for me is like, we don't know what human nature is. We don't even know what wildness is. We have preconceived, because we've been afraid of and demonized wildness for so long, because civilization is a competitive based structure and hierarchically based structure, it projects that onto the wholeness of nature and wildness. It's projecting competitiveness. So even though Darwin looked at evolution and saw natural selection and articulated natural selection without really mentioning that it was survival of the fit in terms of aggressive competitiveness, that's where people went with it, right? Yeah. So you had follow-up, you had, you know, Peter Kropotkin follow that up with his book, Mutual Aid which is one of the like foundations of anarchist philosophy, uh, particularly uh, anarcho-primitivism or primal anarchy. But you have somebody has to like come out and reiterate that, but nobody cares. Nobody wants to accept that because it's not the world that we live in. What we do, I think, as people is we don't seek truth. We seek narratives that explain how we feel and what's going on around us. So instead of seeing that nature isn't competitive, we make up a lie that it is to explain why we are competitive today, right? So, in regards to immediate return and delayed return, 
immediate return societies, when you hear people say, oh, hunter-gatherers were egalitarian societies, they had very minimal violence and you know there was gender equality and this kind of stuff, they're talking about immediate return hunter-gatherers. Yeah. There's no way to hold power over somebody in an immediate return society because there's no one who's controlling the food, there's no one controlling the resources. It's just there. The idea of abundance and support from nature is because I could just go pick an apple from a tree and eat it or whatever, you know, like I don't have to ask the apple owner for permission or like, you know, pick all the apples, do labor for them for, for some exchange that doesn't exist. Immediate return societies, there's no property ownership, right? So everything out there is collectively available for consumption. So what that does is it, it just, there's just no reason why anybody would ever have any power over anybody else. The one thing that we can kind of see in some of those instances is um, meat and fat. I mean, there, there's some people who, um, in terms of caloric consumption, immediate return hunter-gatherers get a lot of that calorie from, well, they get a lot of their calories and nutrients from megafauna, right? So big animals. Um, and so that can put that can make a, a disproportionate um, emphasis on gendered uh, labor, right? But even then, in immediate return societies, hunting, you know, there's just all oh, men were the hunters and women were the baby and carers and gatherers. And um, there's definitely a spectrum, right? So there's there's the way we project our own ideas onto it, and then what's actually going on is very different. Right. Um, and so it's hard to really gauge a lot of that stuff. It's a lot more gray than people want it to be. They want it to be black and white. You know, um, I don't think that humans are inherently evil. I don't think that we're inherently good. I think we, our behavior is a product of so many different things in our environments, in our DNA, in our epigenetics, in the nutrition that we receive in our you know childhood traumas that are inflicted like there's just the bacteria that exist in our guts you know the viruses that exist in our bodies like uh, who we are is a smorgasbord of our environments and our bodies are made up of our environments right so but then there's like psychological uh environmental psychology you know why is it that when men in prisons have pink jumpsuits, we see a statistical decrease in violence in prison. Why? Uh, who knows? But it happens. So they have pink jumpsuits because they want to decrease the violence, right? So in regards to immediate return and delayed return, we see these behavioral differences. We see an increase in violence in delayed return societies. That's because once you have food stored, it becomes a, a larder that you must defend against other people. Yeah. If you put all this labor and energy into gathering this, and now you're banking on that, you're going to want to defend it. I believe that food storage was created at the upper Paleolithic because that's when we see technology becoming more and more refined in terms of stone tools, 
and other things. It becomes more and more and more specific. Whereas for millions of years, stone tool use doesn't change much, you know? Um, Something this conversation with my girlfriend the other day, we were walking down the street and I saw a robin's nest in a tree. And we were joking, you know, every robin's nest it looks the same, right? Slightly different. <coughs> Excuse me. But every bird builds the same kind of nest. We call it instinct, right? Yeah. And yeah, there's variation, you know, depending on like what the materials are in the in the animal's environment. And some of them will shift to different things, right? But if you look in the archaeological record, the Oldowan chopper, which was the first stone tool industry, the Oldowan industry, although now it's, you know, there's the other one that um, starts with an L, I can't remember the name of it. The Oldowan industry was considered the first stone tool industry for a long time. It's 2.5 million years old. And then 1.5 million years ago, you have the Acheulean hand axe comes into play. The Acheulean hand axe is on three continents. You know, Homo erectus was doing that across Eurasia and in Africa. So it pretty much looks the same on every continent. Mm. And so there's an anthropologist named Tim Ingold and his, you know, there's these anthropologists, there's essays about the cognitive requirements to make stone tools and pass it on and culture and all these different things. But there's an anthropologist named Tim Ingold who's been like, what if, you know, what if humans just did it because it felt like the thing to do? You know, what if all these hand axes, they rel there's not a lot of experimentation going on. It could have solely been like the robin's nest, like a bird's nest. They're making it, it looks the same everywhere. Maybe that just became something that we did, right? We adapted to and we created. And there wasn't like a thought to innovate or change it in any particular way for a million years or more, right? So the question then, you know, and be, it, for me is like, what is technology and where does technology, anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> we don't have to get into that. Um, but in regards to, I don't know where the fuck I'm going with this <laughs> or where I started. You asked me to talk about the difference between the immediate return and delayed return. Okay. So this is why it's really hard for me to write a book. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm all I, over the place. Like I said, I like it's a get, web, you know? Yeah, I'd like to get into some of the technology stuff and your views on that at some point, if you don't mind sharing. Cool. On that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, with the Upper Paleolithic, we see um, what some people might call a flourishing of technology. You know, there's very um, <laughs> fruitful language to make ourselves sound like we're the best, most intelligent species. We're doing all these things. Right? I don't know. Humans, some humans in some places started creating and, and getting very specific about their tool use and changing it up, right? At that same time, we see Homo sapiens expanding out of Africa, hybridizing with Neanderthals and Denisovans, and at that point, colonizing the planet or settling the entire planet, you know, 60 to 40,000 years ago through Eurasia and around that time into the, into the Americas. Um, so to me, the, that delineation is a huge one in terms of the transition. I don't, I don't think, again, I don't think anything is inevitable per se, but I am a determinist in that I think, you know, civilization would not be possible if agriculture did not exist. 
agriculture would not be possible if food storage did not exist. All of these things have to be interplaying together with one another in order to happen, right? So in that regard, I'm a, I'm a determinist. All the alluvian plains in the last 10,000 years or, or less you know, were converted to civilizations, agricultural endeavors. All of the steppes were turned into like nomadic um, pastoralists. And all of those marginal areas are where hunter-gatherers still exist today and where they fled to. There's a great book called The Art of Not Being Governed by James C. Scott. And in it, he basically says that about 100 years ago or more, none of the mountain regions of the world were considered citizens of the state that had drawn a map around their bound, around the mountains where they lived, right? And his example is in Southeast Asia, there's a, a mountain range. It's kind of like Appalachia or um, the Andes or somewhere, or the Alps, you know? There's these mountain ranges all around the world that run through multiple countries. If you're in what he calls Zomia, which is connected to the Himalayas stuff, it runs through seven countries in Southeast Asia. A hundred years ago, the people living in those mountains, none of them considered themselves part of the states that had labeled that land theirs, yeah. right? And, and before those states existed, you had overlapping um, hierarchical states that didn't have the boundaries that we think of as like national states today or, in, or you know, there wasn't nationalism. It was essentially like overlapping boundaries. And if you lived in the middle, you were kind of like, I'm part of both of these <laughs> societies or whatever, right? So uh, the way we conceive and perceive of as states and nations today is completely different even than a hundred years ago, you know? Um, and what really gave states the power in the last hundred years was oil and industry and the industrial revolution, right? Uh, because these marginal, quote unquote, marginal areas were hard to, for states to get to. So you think about like the Mediterranean, for example, right? It was easier for Italy to go all the way around the continent by boat than it was to go up and over the Alps. So in terms of like mobility, you can see empire expanding across, across these waterways. Um, and this is explained really well um, in um, Eric Wolf's book, um, Europe and the People Without History, another great book in that vein. Uh, more, more about capitalism, but kind of talks about these, these historical um, tendencies and, and subsistence strategies and, and how they were overlapping in all these places in the year 1400 um, as his like, basis for how capitalism ended up kind of like intersecting into those things and then becoming what it is today and, and, and creating the Industrial Revolution and that kind of stuff. But um god where where the hell are we going with this <laughs> um anyway so that's the difference between <laughs> immediate return and delayed return right is yeah. is this food storage thing um and yeah, again like agriculture yeah like how yeah, yeah. so in the mountains and and how yeah. domesticated peoples were more focusing around areas where they could access through fields and waterways and and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's why the hills are defensible regions where you had um, people grow existing, doing horticulture, doing um, swidden agriculture, slash and burn agriculture, um, and immediate return hunter-gatherers, delayed return hunter-gatherers. You kind of have like these marginal people just kind of doing everything that they can to stay essentially out of state control, out of state power, because agriculture has all these problems because of the density of population. You know, disease alone 
is enough for people to not want to be a member of agriculture. Never mind the fact that you have to work eight hours a day, you know, in the rice field or the wheat field, um, in order to pay the tax collectors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so, get fed food that's like nutritionally just incomparable exactly. to you would get as a exactly. hunter gatherer working one yeah. hour a day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, so I guess, uh, where I want to go with this is what, like you, you mentioned before, um, understanding your, where you are and your connection to place and understanding your local ecology, how important do you think it is for people to start to get connected to their specific area or their specific place rather than just seeing nature as this whole kind of inseparable um, thing like how do we start to get connected back to our local ecology yeah i mean to me rewilding once you have the lens of rewilding you have a framework for like immediate return hunter gatherers to me set the bar for what is possible for humanity right it might not be possible today <laughs> but it is what is possible right and so to me it's growing roots and not necessarily in in terms of sedentism but if that's all you have the ability to do you know then yeah to me um rewilding is about once you have that framework diversifying and localizing your food learning to grow food in a regenerative way so you're not burning through soil you're using perennial plants it's way less labor. Perennial means, you know, once you plant it, it's there forever, essentially. So, you know, um, drought adapted perennial plants, native drought adapted perennial plants, uh, and drought because the climate's warming, you know. Um, so that's going to be the native plants are going to be the most adapted, the most um, adaptable to climate, regional climate change. Um, and then the perennial aspect of it is so that you don't have to do a lot of labor. You don't have to water it because, you know, again, if you're having to water until the soil year after year to grow your food, it's not going to be that great. Um, one of the, um, one of my friends has property and it's all oak trees and they do like an oak acorn harvest once a year. And he posted a thing that was like, how come everybody hates on oak trees, especially like wild food, you know, state states, like they hate oak trees, they cut them down. And I was like, well, it's, it's cause they're not predictable. You know, oak nut trees have this thing called masting where every two to seven years they do a bumper crop and then you don't, and it's completely random. You don't know when that bumper crop is going to happen. Right. So if you're in power and what you offer in, if you you know if you're if you have are holding power over people, and what you offer them is predictability, you know like an oak tree a perennial isn't the thing an unpredictable nut tree is not where you're going to get your nutrients or not nutrients your calories, you're going to get your calories from the predictable annual grain something you can grow every year right, an annual grows once a year, dies. So the majority of agricultural crops are those annuals. They grow and they die. That's why you have to replant them every year. Perennials, trees, 
or you know there are perennial grasses um, you know those just continue to grow and flower and seed every year you don't have to do any more labor there's actually people trying to like genetically modify grasses to create perennial grains for consumption to solve the climate change problem because perennial grasses actually store more carbon than trees in these mm. in in some instances because they're constantly growing roots deeper. I mean, some of these roots of perennial grasses go 60 feet down. Wow. And every time they get chewed off on the top, you have a little bit of root die off. Yeah. And so when your roots die off, that carbon is then stored in the earth. So when you have grazing, this is where this is where like the um, holistic grazing and and cattle ranchers are trying to like be like, no, actually we can we can use large animals to sequester carbon and not be releasing them the way factory farming is. It's not that we have to stop eating meat, it's that we have to change the way that it's done, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of that interesting thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not gonna say I'm pro-genetic engineering in any way, shape or form, but it's an interesting solution that some people are trying to do in that regard, right? Um, but yeah, for, for um, you know, through the lens of rewilding, I think it, that learning to grow your own food learning how indigenous people in your place, if you are a settler in a place that was colonized and you are an orphan brought to a, a place like that, or a, um, then the idea is to be integrated into the land through collaboration with indigenous people because they already have all of this knowledge. I mean, I know you're in Australia, so I don't know if you've read The Largest Estate on Earth or The Biggest Estate on Earth. I can't remember the name. Yeah, I've read it's that. by Tom, Tom Gamage. Yeah, I mean, it's about indigenous land management, sustainable, regenerative land management, right? So, I mean, there's lots of, I don't know what the take is from different Aboriginal folks in Australia uh, from his books. So, you know, I mean, there's lots of controversy here in regards to similar types of books. I'm sure there's that type of thing going on there. But yeah. for me, you know, when... I don't differentiate between the land and the people. So to me, if I'm gonna connect with the land, indigenous people are the land from yeah. my perspective. And you know, there's people like, well, they're not here anymore. Like their reservation is a hundred miles away, blah, blah, blah. That to me is like lazy and um, <laughs> it's inappropriate in my, in my <laughs> it's unethical from my perspective because they are the land. So if you wanna really connect with it, you can do a huge service to the land by bringing those people back, by helping them rekindle their connection is gonna rekindle your connection. Um, I'm not advocating being like a quote unquote white savior and thinking like, oh, I need to save the indigenous people or help them. It's more like, I wanna be a collaborator. You know what I mean? I wanna like, I don't wanna be a, um, a leech off the land and recapitulate the same things. This is why I think that what people here, if they're not engaging with, and I say here, I'm talking about North America, if you're a settler and you're not engaging with the indigenous people, that to me is not rewilding because rewilding is looking at this whole encompassing picture of civilization and trying to undo that damage by embracing wildness and embracing wildness means connecting with the people who lived a wild existence here for time immemorial and that to me is more important than running away to the wilderness and not and disconnecting yourself from the wholeness of civilization too that that to me is like um, I don't care if people do that but to me rewilding is about 
finding that interface between a collapsing empire of civilization and the economics of that and creating the new interface of regenerative subsistence. But there's a middle ground where we, we're all captives to it. And I feel like people who run away to the wilderness are pretending they're not. Instead of standing in the middle and being like, I recognize I'm a captive, we're all posers, you know, who want to be hunter-gatherers or, or want to be horticulturalists and have this regenerative relationship, a sustainable one. We have to be an interface and recognize that we're captives to it. Because, you know, <laughs> Lynx drives a car, has a computer, has a house, like, you know, takes sh hot showers. Like, it's no, everybody lives in this middle ground. And to pretend that you, like, live this pristine buckskin only, no metal tool, stone tool, stone age existence, to me is like, um, it's performance art. And that's yeah. why I consider what they do live action role playing. It's not um, recognizing where we are today. It's pretending we're somewhere else. And if you're pretending you're somewhere else, that means that people who are existing where they are today aren't able to connect with that pretend lifestyle because it's so far out there and fake and unattainable, like I already said earlier, right? Um, and again, I, I love what they're doing and I, I have so much appreciation and respect. And on the, one, on the other hand, there's this massive criticism for not for for using a label and then not actually connecting with those people which yeah. to me is like should be intrinsic to everybody who's doing this work yeah i totally agree that's great um is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up um i think i think that's a good uh a good that's chunk good. Yeah, for, sure. <laughs> for folks yeah. to digest so absolutely yeah. Yeah, cool. How can um, people connect with you and kind of follow more of your work? Uh, my website is petermichaelbauer.com. Um, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook. Um, if you're interested in my nonprofit, Rewild Portland, you can find our website, rewildportland.com. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on, man. It was great chatting. Yeah, sure. Sweet. So if you got any value out of today's episode with Peter, it was a great conversation and I, I hope you did get value out of it. Let us know. Tag us on Instagram with some of your key takeaways and thoughts from today's episode. We'd love to hear what you think. Tag myself, tag Peter. As I mentioned in the interview, all the links to connect with Peter Michael Bauer are in the show notes. So head over there if you want to connect with him and find out more about what he's doing. On to what's happening with me. As many of you may know, I'm in the process of creating retreats based around rewilding, natural movement and community and really bringing together many of these concepts that we kind of touched on in this interview and, and bringing them into the modern world and really fostering a sense of place-based regenerative culture and community. So these retreats will integrate real-world ancestral skills such as hunting, primitive technology, natural movement, and much more. So if you're interested in getting along to one of these retreats, I want to find out more. Message me over on Instagram at move underscore wild or email me at jake at movewildcollective.com or head over to my Indiegogo page where you can purchase discounted early bird tickets or find out more about these retreats. If you want to connect with me or follow me along on this journey, head over to Instagram at move underscore wild, where I share my exploration into the world of rewilding and my daily movement practice and documenting all that through photos. So again, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you on the next episode coming out on Friday.